Elaine Pearson has been campaigning for human rights for more than 20 years from her first job with an anti-human trafficking organisation in Bangkok to her new position as the Asia Director of Human Rights Watch. She has travelled to every continent and campaigned for the rights of women, for the victims of war, for people experiencing repression of their human rights to a safe place to work, a life free from persecution. She's one of those women that you wonder, where does she get the energy, the resolve, the determination to keep fighting for what she believes in? I've had Elaine on the drum in the past and I'm very much looking forward to this chat tonight, not just about her work but about what drives her. She has already written a book about her life so far and it's called Chasing Wrongs and Rights, a personal journey of fighting for justice around the world. Welcome to LNL. Elaine, how are you? Good evening, Ellen. <laughs> I'm well, thanks. <laughs> right. Now I get to ask all the questions I wanted to ask. How this <laughs> evenly spoken woman is, is, is actually a very persistent and determined human rights warrior. So you're going to take me back to, to the beginning, to the British-born father and the, and the Chinese mother from Singapore. Tell me about Dad. Yeah, so look, I mean, I was born in the western suburbs of Blacktown. Dad was a 10-pound pom from Britain. Um, he met my mum in Singapore. Um, and yeah, I was born in, in Sydney and then we emigrated to Perth, um, yeah, when I was six years old. Uh, so I guess like a lot of mixed race kids, um, I had a bit of a crisis of confidence at an early age, you know, am I white, am I Asian? And I guess back then being mixed race, it was a bit unusual, you know, it wasn't as common as it is now. Um, so, you know, I faced a little bit of sort of low level racism. Um, and I guess, yeah, I mean, it's not often, I guess, that human rights activists will say that they have Pauline Hanson to thank, um, <laughs> for their start in activism. But, you know, that certainly was how I got interested in participating in my first protest. I want to, st I want to talk about the family a little bit before we talk about dear Pauline, but, um, <laughs> Um, dad, dad was extraordinary and mum was, was, was amazing. Dad had been evacuated during the Blitz, you're right. His own father yes. died at four and he went to this yep. dreadful boarding school. But he then turned around and was this amazing father to not only you but your uh, four half-siblings. Tell me how that un unfolded. Yes, that's right. I mean, when dad immigrated um, from the UK, he already had uh, two young kids. He then had two more um, after he arrived uh, with his first wife, who, yeah, had also come from England. Um, and it was was pretty tough. Um, she, you know, very sadly passed away when the youngest was uh, two, I think, and the oldest was 12. Um, and they had it tough. I mean, he was working in the daytime at um, Qantas, uh, scheduling the flights in and out of Australia in a time before that was done by computers. And on the weekends, he was working as a waiter, catering weddings to try and help make ends meet. Uh, so it was pretty tough for them growing up. Um, and then, you know, years later, he met my mum and I came along. And I definitely had it much easier than my older brothers and sisters. But I think because both my mother and my father had come from families where they had had to struggle and it had been tough. You know, I never forgot about that. I always knew that that was, you know, our family history and that I shouldn't 
take things like my education for granted because this was an opportunity um, that I was lucky to have and it was one that neither of my parents had been able to have. Mm. Um, you knew, you know a lot about um, your dad's background but not so much about um, your mum's even though you would regularly go and see her parents in Singapore. Yes, that's right. So, yeah, I would say my dad, you know, loved telling me all the stories about his, you know, difficult, um, you know, sometimes tough upbringing in, in harsh boarding schools and, you know, when he was in the Royal Air Force. But on my mum's side, um, the Asian side of the family very much lived in the present and the future and things that happened in the past were very rarely discussed. So, you know, from Perth, we'd go up to Singapore, you know, once a year for a family holiday, we'd go out eating, we'd go out shopping. Um, I'd spend quite a bit of time in my grandparents' apartment. They lived in a public housing uh, apartment in Singapore. But my grandmother, she didn't speak any English and I didn't speak any Tuachu. So, you know, she was had been an opera singer. She loved to perform. She still loved to perform uh, in that little apartment even though her audience was really just an audience of one, of me. Um, but, you know, it was it was really wonderful. We still had a really wonderful connection despite the fact that we didn't have a common language. There's, and there's a wonderful part of the book when you, when you describe grandfather who was much quieter, you know, shaved head, white singlet, uh, light blue pyjama pants, plastic uh, slippers, the universal look for the older Chinese man in Singapore. But she was something. What was that herbal liqueur she was drinking? She was sneaking <laughs> cigarettes in the kitchen and she was dancing with the granddaughter. She was fun. Yes, yes. My grandmother was definitely um, always the life and centre of the party. And because I hadn't known my grandparents on, you know, my father's side, I just thought that's how all grandmothers behaved. <laughs> Before we talk more about grandma... Then in the book, you, you get this impression because you're so even, Elaine. You're so you're so loyally and you're passionate, but at the same time, you know, you speak very evenly. You were quite the little brat, weren't you? Dad's working for Qantas. <laughs> you're flying across the country to see your, your, your stepsister and brothers and you're like, I'm not having being an unaccompanied minor. I'm flying by myself, stomp, stomp. Yes, I was definitely a very um, precocious youngest child and I think, you know, that goes from having older brothers and sisters who were quite a bit older and who really doted on me, but that made me think that I was an adult even, you know, when I was the age of 12 or 13 and so I was like, I don't need adults to chaperone me. I'm totally fine flying myself from, you know, Perth to Sydney or Perth to Hobart to to visit my older brothers and sisters. So, yeah, I was really quite a pain in the neck. Um, but, you know, luckily they were always there at the other side to pick up, pick me up and, and look after me. Mm. So Australia is a little uh, vanilla for you by the time you're 23. It's a bit small, it's a bit homogenous, it's a bit too comfortable. And you read John Pilger's A Secret Country and it leaves a, a lasting impression on you about... Uh, the abuse of Aboriginal people in this country. What was it that so shocked you? Well, there's a line in that book, A Secret Country, uh, where he talks about the town of Robin in northwestern Australia, a town that I'd never visited, 
Um, and he talks about the rate at which Aboriginal men, women are arrested on average each year. And I think it's, you know, it's several times a year. And that line, you know, even now, more than 20 years later, it still really sticks out for me because, you know, I think at that time it was, you know, my first sort of awakening of how our First Nations people had been treated in the criminal justice system. It was something that I felt like I hadn't learnt at school or, you know, in university um, to that extent, and I really wanted to know more. I was angry, I was outraged, um, and, you know, it was a very powerful book. Um, John Pilger, you know, sadly... I no longer quite hold him in the, the same esteem as I did, you know, certainly back then. I think his views on a number of topics have changed um, quite a lot. But, you know, for me, that book uh, was really powerful. And I became really interested in how the law could be used as an avenue for justice, for fairness, for equal treatment um, for everyone. Mm. And so I started thinking about how I could be involved in doing that, but I didn't really want to go down the pathway of being, you know, a black letter lawyer or corporate lawyer. Like I, I like didn't really see. Like your mother wanted you to. Yes. <laughs> like your parents expected you to. And and that's and that's what I'm really wanting to get out of this interview was. Uh, there's a there's a thing that happens in Australia where we are lulled back into the great silence. You know, we slip back into forgetting these events ever happened and we don't speak of them. What was it about um, the young you who was outraged in that moment and, and you remain outraged by it? Yeah, I was outraged, I think. I mean, it was that combination of like, you know, reading that book by John Pilger it was, you know, Pauline Hansen's visit at university, you know, when I joined my first protest and I felt that incredible solidarity with so many other Australians, you know, whether they were Asian Australians, First Nations Australians, other Australians, just that powerful moment of everyone standing together. And, you know, I think for me it crystallised that racism is a reason why, you know, so many human rights abuses occur because, and I think that is where I got this drive to work on these abuses because it becomes this excuse or this justification for governments to treat one group of people differently on the basis of race. And of course, they never say that that's the case, but it is the case, whether it's Uyghurs in China, you know, whether it's Tamils in Sri Lanka, whether it's refugees in Australia. Um, and so, you know, I think racism really is at the heart mm. of so many human rights violations around the world. Mm. And so you have Pauline to thank because the Swamped by Asian line for a little girl who had uh, grown up in Perth and dealt with low-level racism and worked really hard <laughs> to, be, to be the perfect daughter was, as you say in the book, a kick in the guts. Yes, it, it, that totally was a kick in the guts. And I just felt... Furious, I felt angry at Pauline. I can't believe that all these years later, you know, she's again in our parliament. Um, but I was also really angry at the response, you know, from John Howard. And as I write in the book, you know, I think the fact that he was, you know, basically trying to say that, oh, you know, the protesters are giving her more oxygen by taking to the streets. I was like, no, you don't understand. You don't understand what this means for Australians who aren't white, who have tried, you know, desperately hard to assimilate. Um, and what, yeah, what, what that has really meant for us. And, and so, you know, I think for me, I just had this, I already had this intense curiosity about the world because, you know, neither of my parents were from Australia and I had 
opportunities to travel, but I think it just made me really interested in exploring, you know, what careers there could be outside of Australia. Mm. Um, and yeah, I was very fortunate that my career did take me to, you know, a lot of interesting places. Mm. And I guess part of what you were kicking back then when John Howard is saying it's quite stupid, she's best ignored, is you're pushing back against this Australian thing we've seen this week. You can't talk about the Republic when the Queen dies. You can't talk about climate change when there's a flood. You can't talk about, you know, the voice and Aboriginal empowerment if there's a single, quote-unquote, practical piece of reconciliation to be done. You've said, no, 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 these are pressing issues and you've deconstructed all of that and said, no, no, this requires activism now. Is that a good summation? Yeah, I think I, I think it is. I mean, I think if you can't talk about these problems when they're right there in front of your face, like when can you talk about them? Like that is actually what leads to the cusp of change. And so, of course, it's going to be uncomfortable for people to have those conversations. But, you know, I think we really need to seize those opportunities to make them meaningful. Um, and we can't just, you know, sort of acquiesce and sit back and hope that things will get better mm, because, mm. you know, doing that actually, you know, is basically then allowing things to to get even worse. And I think part of being a human rights activist really is about holding the line and preventing bad situations from being worse um, by exposing these abuses and calling out the human rights abusers and the perpetrators mm. of these violations. The first issue you really got stuck into was the trafficking of women. And you write that um, you learnt the valuable lesson of listening to those you're trying to protect. Yes. I mean, I was really lucky, actually, that, you know, as a young 23-year-old fresh law graduate, you know, my first experience was to fly over to Geneva and attend uh, this gathering of the UN Working Group on Slavery. And, you know, this was the most diverse bunch of women I had ever met in my life. It was, sex, you know, sex workers from India, domestic workers from Bolivia, um, you know, former Khmer Rouge uh, survivors from Cambodia and academics, you know, from, from Singapore. So I really learned from, from these women and, and having these women sort of leading on panels to talk about human trafficking and in particular, you know, one woman who was Marla Singh, a, a sex worker from Calcutta, I still remember, you know, she got up, she said, I'm not a criminal, I pay my rent, um, I do my job, and I want to be treated as a worker. And to me, that was very powerful. And I think that, you know, really instilled one of the central principles of human rights work is that our work, you know, is to put participation and self-representation of affected people really at the centre and at the heart of what we do. And so you really need to listen and amplify the voices of those who are most affected by abuses, whether they're refugees, whether they're migrants, um, and so I think I was, you know, quite lucky to sort of see that all play out early on in my career and that's something that I've really tried to stick to. Hmm. When you researched this book, you came across uh, a recording that your grandmother had made for an oral history project and suddenly the past is uncovered, the past that no one would talk about. What did you discover once you had it translated for you? Yeah, well, I mean, there were six hours of audio recordings on tape in the Singaporean National Archives, so it was really quite something to discover, you know, this treasure trove of recordings and, you know, there were uh, 
painstakingly translated by my cousin's um, partner in, in Singapore. Um, but what I uncovered was that my grandmother um, was, you know, her family was starving in, in southern China. Um, and, you know, in order to save herself from starvation, she says that she sold herself willingly to an opera troupe for 300 tails of silver. And she said she did that because she knew that if she joined the opera troupe, she would get to eat rice three times a day. She was 10. And rice, she was 10 years old. She was old. 10 years old and rice was a luxury in their village. They didn't have rice to eat. Um, in the end, actually, her sisters died of starvation. Um, but, yeah, she did that and for seven years, it was for a period of seven years that she was be, to be bonded to the opera troupe. In the end, it was nine, yeah, nine years um, because the second troupe owner didn't want to let her go. But she had such a remarkable um, life and I just uncovered, you know, so many details. I, you know, heard rough stories of how my grandmother and my great-grandmother had reunited um, in China, but actually like hearing the details of that story and knowing that my great-grandmother had gone to Singapore looking for her daughter and been unable to find her and then years later um, was standing in a performance um, and my grandmother was, you know, centre stage and she could hear this woman crying and she says, you know, get that woman out of here, she's distracting me and then only later <laughs> the woman is brought backstage and she's like, don't you recognise your own mother? Um, and they have this very, you know, tearful, heartfelt reunion. Um, and from that point on, you know, they never separated. I mean, my great-grandmother lived with them in the same room um, until until she died. She'd been trafficked. She, Her story was, was the campaigns that you'd been working on. You recognised this as human trafficking. That's what had happened to her. Yes, 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 she was absolutely human. You know, it was a case of human trafficking. And, um, yeah, I mean, it was really quite a shock because obviously I've worked on those cases. I've interviewed hundreds of victims of trafficking who've told me stories of, mm. yeah, deceit, you know, difficulties, difficult working conditions, you know, the poverty that drives them to, you know, make these decisions um, and then to uncover that in my own family past was was really, you know, was really quite something. Yeah. An amazing, an amazing story. Thank you so much for telling us about it um, and for writing the book. Um, you've been on Manus Island. You write about all these different places that you've been and the persistence that you've showed. And, and I think hearing about your family story does give us a sense of, of this person who comes on the drum who is so calm and determined and unrelenting. So it's been lovely to talk to you, Elaine. Oh, thanks so much, Ellen. Elaine Pearson, author of Chasing Wrongs and Rights, published by Simon Schuster. She's also the Executive Director of Human Rights Watch Asia. Getting in touch with ABC RN is easy. Join the conversation live using the ABC Listen app's call and text features.